0: Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 219, recorded February 3rd,
1: 2021. I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy.
2: And I'm Jennifer Stark. Hiya.
1: Yay. Yay. Welcome, Jennifer. It's so great to have you here.
2: Thank you. It's really yes. great to be here. Thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's been great. Uh, it's great to have you here. You know, we had you, or I had you, as a guest over on Talk Python, and that was really fun talking about data science stuff over there. And now we're happy to have you here on Python Bytes as well. Yeah. So um, you really quickly, you want to just tell people about yourself before we jump into the topics?
2: Sure. Um, yep. So I'm Jennifer. I work at Loud Bible as a lead data engineer um, on a really small team of three, but we're a bigger bigger data team for uh, research and insights as well. Um, we've been spending most of our time working on engineering stuff, but we've been moving gradually into like include more, Data science um, tasks as well. So looking forward to doing some more of
1: that. Yeah, that sounds really fun. All right, Brian, you want to uh, kick us off? I, I mean, I heard that you're supposed to use virtual environments and not mess up what you're doing, but uh, if you don't want to, I guess you just just don't do that.
0: <laughs> well, I use virtual environments <laughs> I like do all the time, but there was an article, so I wanted to cover this, um, and there was some discussion online. Uh, an article from uh, Frost Ming titled "You Don't Really Need a Virtual Environment." So what's the story there? Yeah, yeah. So the um, there's a little hint in the slug of the the, the URL that the slug is introducing PDM. So eh, I don't know if he's really saying that you don't need it, but PDM is uh, stands for what does it stand for? Uh, package uh, Python Development Master. Well, that's cool. I I think I want to put that on my business card. I'm a Python <laughs> Development Master. Anyway, um, the so. Th- Let's just go back up a little bit. This this is a kind of a neat tool. It's sort of uh, poetry-like, but um, it says it doesn't use virtual environments. It uses the package, uh, Dunder package directory. So what is that? So there's, we do have this problem with virtual environments. And I do, the main problem I think is it's hard to teach people. So if you're teaching somebody new uh, and you want them to install something, you kind of have to say, okay, well type python-mvnv uh, or, you know, Python mvnv space venv, and then you have to activate it. And in the Mac people do this, the uh, Windows people <laughs> do something else. And then after exactly. you've activated it, then if we've got requirements, you need to install them or install the requirements. And, and I, you know, that's not a fun way to start teaching people how to use Python. So I think we do need to solve that, but I'm not sure this is it.
1: But there's, sure. Well, like Node.js has a similar problem, but they don't necessarily have as much of a challenge because they have this like directory structure, which I think what Dunderpy package is trying to do, right? Like if you have a, a, a node modules folder, some directory up and you do something with NPM, it just goes up till it finds when it's like, well, there, there's the top of the project. We're good. Yeah. So there's, that's, that's
0: kind of what, so there's a PEP 582, which we'll link to that. Um, kind of has that has this it's proposing to have this dunder packages package directory and have that sort of thing so if you're if you're in a directory with one of those around and you do a pip install I think this is how it works. Either it's supposed to. I think it's just going to install stuff there instead of in your global one. So I actually think this would be cool, even even if it's only used for teaching. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It would be a cool thing to have because also you could you could possibly zip this whole thing up and give somebody a directory, and they'd already have all the packages and everything. That'd be
2: cool. Interesting. I wonder if that's kind of similar to how Conda. Is that similar to how Conda works? Could I use Conda ends instead. Um, yeah, so me you probably it feels easier.
1: Yeah, yeah, you probably live way more in the Conda world than the Pip world, right? Mm, yeah. yeah, I I think Conda is sort of a uh, intermediate, right? So with Conda, you do have to say Conda activate, right? Yeah, manually, but yeah, you don't have to be in the right place like with Pip. You, you literally could be anywhere. Have to say yeah, exactly. You just say I have an yeah. environment called this. Let's roll, like activate yeah. that and then go right. Exactly. Whereas this is. It's like, I'm in the right location, but I don't mm-hmm. want to have to talk about environments. And it just happens to be that that environment has a directory structure that Python will know about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's another another part of virtual environments that's a little icky, is that, I guess, it's tied, you know, maybe, uh, it's that if you if you create a virtual environment, you kind of tie it to a particular Python version. Yes. And if you update your Python version, then you're not, your virtual environments aren't pointing to the new one. And I don't really know, I don't know how to, actually, I don't deal with that. I just delete the virtual environment and recreate it. Um, so maybe <laughs> I've gotten there's no
1: really thing. good at doing that because uh, you know, every time I brew upgrade my Python for a major version, it just stops working. I'm like, oh, come on, here we go. You know, Time, just time to erase everything and start over. Yeah. So the PEP582
0: might fix that also because you could just, I, I don't know if it fixes that because it's still in the directory structure. It does have uh python versions in the directory naming thing so uh i think for minor upgrades it would work but for major ones like going from 3.9 to 3.10 i don't think it would help you there i don't know um anyway i don't i don't know enough about 582 to comment on this but i do think it's cool that pdm is around so that you can play with the dunder packages to see what it's like however the workflow within pdm is way more complicated than virtual environments, so in my opinion, so I don't think that it's gonna re- fix the newbie uh problem, but yeah it's still I, a that's neat thing. that's
1: what I feel about with all of these things <laughs> is it's like it solves two problems and it adds three. you're just like, oh, come <laughs> on, <laughs> do I really want to trade those uh a couple comments from the the live stream High Lang says conda rocks mostly, so uh Agreed. right there with you Jennifer, yeah, and Love then. Conda. Yeah, yeah. And then Chen uh, Danelli says, uh, there was a way to set up conda things so it automatically switches to the conda envi- uh, environment, see the environment.yaml file. Uh, I don't know anything about this. Have, have you seen that, Jennifer?
2: I have not used that, no.
1: <sighs> it sounds like we that should all check really it out. That
2: sounds really helpful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds really good. Yeah,
1: thank you, Daniel. All right, well, I guess we should jump over to the next one. Something else that's really uh, helpful is cookie cutter, right? So often we want to go and say, well, I want to create a project and I don't want to just start from file new project. I want to have a certain structure. I want to Mm -hmm. maybe have some of the files there. So for example, if I go and create a new pyramid web app, I can use a cookie cutter to generate that. And it'll say things like what template language do you want to use? Do you want to use SQL Alchemy? And you answer a couple of questions and it generates project already integrating those things with the right directory structure and the right extra dependencies and whatnot. And that's cool, right? So I think cookie cutter is really taken over as the primary way of creating projects that are structured. It's not just Python. You could even create like Atari 2600 assembly language projects and C++, other weird stuff like that. Anything that has to do with projects, uh, just here's a bunch of files, replace uh, some conditionally include others and so on. That's what cookie cutter does. And so that's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is this thing called copier. Have you guys heard of copier?
2: I have not. I have used... Yeah. Cookie Cutter, but I've not heard of this
1: one. Yeah, Cookie Cutter is cool. And it's way more popular than Copier. Copier's pretty relatively unknown, but I think it's worth checking out. I don't know that I'll replace what I'm doing with Cookie Cutter with Copier. They're not interchangeable. They should be. That would be a great feature, but I don't think they can share each other's templates. That said, the thing that is interesting about Copier primarily is that it allows you to upgrade working with projects. So if I go and make a decision to create, say, some web application or whatever else application, it even works for data science, like structuring notebooks and whatnot. If I make a decision and then I change my mind after I've already worked on it for a while, too bad, you don't get any choice. Like it's, you throw it away or you create another one and you kind of diff the files. And you're like, oh, well, what's the difference over here? Oh, I should include this thing. But with copier, you can rerun it on the project and make changes and apply those changes and different choices to an existing project you're working on. That's why I think it's interesting. That's yeah. cool. Does it have a like a prompt-like thing also? I mean, because Cookie Cutter asks you things. I believe it does, yeah. It will ask you questions. Uh, if you look at it, it has... Um, yeah, it'll abso- it absolutely has prompts. I can't really see a great example here. Uh, okay. it's It doesn't use... I believe cookie cutter is like native Python that you program it in. The scripts are Python. And then they drive arbitrary text files and and whatnot with replacement. That it's kind of like Jinja. This Mm -hmm. actually uses YAML. So if um, you look at an example somewhere... I'm not sure exactly uh, where a good example is, but basically you set up YAML files and the YAML files have different types of prompts and questions. You can say like, here, I want to ask for a password and then confirm it, but don't show the output. So there's a lot of configurability and interesting things like that. Um, And then if you rerun it again, it'll say, here's the project structure that you have. Here's the project structure that we're creating. And if it runs into a file, it'll say, "Uh, this one already exists. Do you want to override it? Use the one we're about to generate, things like that. So it's pretty neat. I think that looks pretty cool. I definitely want to check it out. Yeah, yeah. It's it seems to fo- solve a slightly different problem than cookie cutter, but it's I think cookie cutter is the right conceptualization to have when you think about it.
2: Yeah, I did start using, I created my own cookie cutter for some um, data science-y things that oh, I was nice. working on. And, and the, there is a data science cookie cutter that exists already, template that exists, um, but it wasn't completely sitting my needs, so I, I made my own. And then I was going to make one for... Um, for projects in our team, because we do some, you know, like one-off data analysis data yeah. advanced projects, um, and then discovered that GitHub now has, you can make a repo with a temp- as a template, and you can set it as a template in GitHub, and then you just clone it and name it something else. So oh, nice. that's solved part of, doesn't solve everything, you know, if you want something different, then...
1: Right you know, so,
2: this might be really good, but.
1: Yeah, 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 that's right. So I remember if you go to your GitHub repository under settings, there's a checkbox that's off by default that says this repository is a template. That's what mm-hmm. you're talking about, right? Yeah. I yeah.
2: see. So if you set up like empty, you can set up your, set your file structure. So um, it's got nothing about, um, I guess. Interesting. Some of the things that you're setting up in this one are not what you set up in, in the GitHub template. It's just the file structure, really. And if any files, you know, you, that you want to pre-populate with any files, um, but yeah, so you have, um, that's what I was going to solve with cookie cutter. Cookie cutter would have been overkill for this.
1: I see. But, so yeah. I had never I really thought of order. those two things as being the same, but you're right. They're, they're basically the same. Cause normally when you fork a repo, it's like, well, now you can contribute back, but the templates are just, now you start from here and it's not really related back. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Well, mm-hmm. that, yeah, that, that brings us to your first topic, right? <laughs> Tell us about
2: it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was, Speaking of data science in our team, we, um, we had a, a data science project uh, that we started a couple of weeks ago and it had a deadline. So we weren't going to make anything particularly pretty. We just wanted to get something analysed and done. Um, so we were using lots of tooling that we hadn't used before because we were using a massive data set. I think it was a couple of gigs worth of text. So we had to use um, Google's AI platform notebook, which is just Jupyter Notebook on Google cloud. Um but you can you can have different sizes of your machine. You can have as many cores as you want, um, and different types of machines if you want, um, and it would just run notebook for you. So we thought that would solve the problem, we just have like have all these cores um and we run our notebook on that and it'll be magical. But it it wasn't um and a, we're we try to apply do a pandas apply to this huge data frame. It just was not was not working at all. Um, we we even had the the process bar on the bottom, like under the cell, and it would take, I think it was like 10 minutes to do and it was still on zero percent and i thought
1: oh wow oh, we well, <laughs> don't, don't have time for work? this
2: yeah don't have time for this we're already on a deadline and it's like this isn't working um and then I went over to uh terminal and just checked like uh top to see what what um processes were going on and this was, like one python thing and i thought oh well it's not yeah we could speed that so, up let's see what we can do yeah, there e-
1: even though you have a ton of cores and a lot of a high-end machine, it's still just single-threaded, basically, right?
2: Yes, it yeah. is. Um, so I looked at a few alternatives and didn't want to get too much into, I think some people were suggesting um, there's some desk-related yeah. modules we could use, like I think Swifter was one, um, but there was it didn't work instantly for me. So I looked for something else <laughs> and found...
1: Um, <laughs> you have 30 seconds, uh, library. Work for me. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I can't figure it out, bin it, start again, find something else, yeah, I, I yeah. tried, um, find Pan, um, which just parallelizes any pandas apply function. Um, so you can tell it, you, know, you, you can tell it if you, how many cores you want to use, you might not want to use all of them, um, and it's not like a linear or exponential improvement, is it, like doubling your cores does not necessarily hard your time. Yeah. Um, there's some overhead. Um, so yeah, you can tell it how many cores you want to use, um, you can also opt. I think on the if you scroll down, it says you can also add like a, a progress bar to it in the options. Nice. Um But it and then, yeah, it got some benchmarking there as well. And it's just really easy to use. Um, so that solved our problem. Again, like the whole project was just quick and dirty, but um, to get it done quickly, this is great. And then going over to terminal and doing top again, it's like boom. Or Python. Just Python, 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 Python. Like, yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. Beautiful. Okay. And by default, if you don't you can specify the number of workers, but if you don't, it's just the number of CPU cores.
2: Yeah, all of them.
0: Um so just a quick question. It looks like this is um it says it it's mostly around the apply function. What does apply do as a reminder?
2: Um so if you have a if you specify a function somewhere and then when you uh, when you hit apply, I think there's some examples actually a bit further down of the of the kinds of um applies that you do so you can have um, where you'd normally put apply func so you can apply a function to that whole directory of sorry to that whole data frame or to a specific uh column within that data frame um so any function you apply will be column will be row wise in that column oh okay um so the function only has to work on a single row essentially um so anywhere where you'd put apply if you're using parallel you just pan-parallel. you just replace apply with parallel Apply, and then it will nice. parallelize yeah, the
0: function. It's cool. very
1: cool. Yeah, it looks super cool. Um, Daniel asks, whoops, uh, not that one, this one. He asks, uh, how does this compare to Dask? Uh, I do you not know. know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have not used Dask a lot either, but I think Dask can be set up to run in parallel on a given machine. Uh, it can also be set up to run you know, in a distributed uh, cluster, basically. Yeah, uh, my th- my feeling is
2: data sets, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah my my first impression is probably like this is about i've got to apply this function to every element i want that to be fast and simple let's just do that uh, it, yeah that's that's my first thought um i yeah. think
2: the the other option i used or looked at for 30 seconds was swifter and i think that is a dask based module i think um, yeah. but i might be misremembering
0: and then uh Somebody else said um, uh, that apply is like map in base Python. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very
1: cool. Um, Brian, you know what else is cool? Before we get on the next thing, what is uh, what if I wanted to learn pytest? Say if I was say, Jennifer's team, maybe <laughs> I, I could get a book on pytest. Right. So yeah. this episode is oh, brought to you by us.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I I'd highly recommend a book called Python Testing with pytest. There's a small glitch with it, though. It was written in 2017. So um, I've, if you go to pytestbook.com. There's a, a bunch of errata that will help you. There's some just some minor changes. Uh, I forgot to pin a version of one of the libraries, stuff like that. So um, if you go to pytestbook.com, that page has some errata that helps you through learning pytest and awesome. with the book. Um, there is a second edition on its way, but it is a long way out. So
1: don't wait for it. That's <laughs> uh, a lot of work. Yeah. So uh, I'll over at Then Trading, we're working on a bunch of courses. Breaking news! Never mentioned this before, but we may be having a Dask course coming soon. So, oh, uh, nice. just just so you know. And uh, Damon also says, uh, probably more experienced than definitely me or Brian. The Dask has more features. It can do chunking on the data frame to work around the RAM size limit, for example, and whatnot, which is pretty interesting. And also notice down over here, how was it uh, this option use memory FS? Uh, it will actually use this memory file system thing, which uh, sounds like it's good for lots of data as well, cool. but. Um, and I, I haven't been out much. I used to love to go out and get like a milkshake or something. And but you wanted me to use ice cream instead for Python. <laughs> yes. So what's going on here? Yeah.
0: yeah. So I actually uh kind of love this. Um, there's a there's an article uh, from uh, Kuyen Tran. Uh, Stop using print to debug in Python. Use ice cream instead. Yeah. And I think we've covered a couple of others, <laughs> like other print alternatives. Uh, but yeah. Um, I went ahead and tried this and it's pretty cool. So um, with the, with the new F print stuff, you can, there's, I forget when it came in, but you can do an equal sign uh, to, to print and it prints a nice like variable name or whatever, whatever you want. And then the value of it next to it. So it's nice, but it's still a lot of typing. So if you want to print, uh, print something nice, you, you know, type it's a, it's a lot of typing. It's not tons, but when you're do, throwing debugging in, you're probably stressed. Doing it quickly is good. So ice cream is just a way to do this faster. So ice cream is, uh, instead of typing print for your debugging output, you type IC. So first of
1: all, fewer characters. Yeah, right, right fewer there. characters.
0: No curly brackets. You don't have to do quotes. <laughs> um, it's just IC, and then, and then you give it whatever object or expression yeah. you want to print. So that's cool. That's it. Uh, so even just at that, it's worth it. It's less typing. I mean, you do have to import it, but there's that. Um, but there's other stuff too. So you can, uh, if you don't give it any arguments, it, uh, logs, um, it's kind of like easy deep de- flow control debugging without having a debugger. Because if it, every time it hits an IC statement without, uh, without any arguments, it'll by default print, um, like the file and function and line number where it's at. So you can kind of trace through your stuff. So that's nice. Um if you want to have that tracing uh be part of all of your statements, even the ones where you pass something in, there's a way to configure that too, which is very nice. Oh nice. Um I you can custom prefix, which is kinda it's which is like super powerful. I'm totally going to use it for this. Um so the example that they have is is instead of you can of course you can just put a string in or something, but it's a callback. So you have a callback function getting called. So you can use that. Their example is to inject the date time, which is kind of neat. You can inject the date time in your print statement. But I was thinking you could use that to uh, encode system state, like which users logged in or um, whatever other system state you kind of want to track while you're debugging something. This would be really cool to do since you use a callback function. A um, couple other features with it. it. It doesn't go to standard out. It goes to standard error by default. So it's not cluttering up your output if you're storing your nice. output somewhere. Um, and then uh, one of the other things, I'm glad they like this article lists this as a, as a feature. It's not a print statement. So when you want to clean out all your debugging, you can just search for all of your IC lines and clean those out, um, you don't because you might have print statements that are supposed to be there and you don't need to clean those out. So definitely. yeah, you could
1: even sort of cancel it out with an import statement. Just define import, uh, define IC to be a function that takes whatever and does nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. So people who are listening, you know, you, you say if I were to say IC of a function call like plus five and give it the number four, the output would be IC colon then actually plus five with the argument values, colon, the return value. And so it's a really nice way. Instead of just printing nine and 10, it prints, I called plus five with four and got nine. I called plus five with five and got 10. And it just, it sort of summarizes the the debug information a little bit better. Jennifer, I think this might make sense inside even a Jupyter Notebook.
2: Yeah, I think it will. I was just, I was just thinking this is even less typing than if you used F strings.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, And a little more powerful, and like Brian said, you kind of know it's intentionally a debug thing. Mm. You could even rename, you know, import ic as debug, and just like make it really clear <laughs> if you really wanted, right? Oh, that's, yeah, what,
2: three extra letters to type.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I know because <laughs> I'm not sure if I saw ic in my code. You know, without being familiar with this, that I know what that's about. It's your code. Is that a pun? Yeah.
2: Are they making a pun? Like, I see, I see my error Oh or my I output Oh, I see, I see.
1: Yes, <laughs> they, they may be, they may be. And uh, Piling is, is a fan of the name, brilliant name. Yeah, it's pretty clever. All right, uh, good one, Brian. So uh, the last two, by the way, the parallel panderal had a great visualization. This one has some great visuals. And this next one I want to talk about, you know, I think might be what part of the reason we love these things. It's like they, they communicate their value. So clearly this thing called HTMX, High power tools for HTML. Hmm. So, Brian, I know you fall into this realm. I do some of the time as well. Jennifer, maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, if you're going to write some interactive web pages, you it's like, you really want to drop in and write a ton of JavaScript and do all that interaction by hand, or would you rather just have it like magic its way into interactivity? And so that's a little magic. bit. What, yeah, who doesn't want because, the magic, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> So this is kind of what this is. Like normally, if you have a, a web page, you have two options. You can have a form, and that form could like post back and submit some data, and then you could write some JavaScript, so if I click on some element, something happens. But what this does is it lets you to go to almost any, uh, any element in your page: a picture, paragraph, whatever. and you can say, if you interact with this, here is a CSS transition to run. Here is a WebSocket call to do. Here is an uh, Ajax. JavaScript call, and then it does something in reverse. So, what I could say, for example, is when somebody clicks on this picture, replace it with whatever HTML fragment I get back on the server that I told it to call. So, the picture could be like, click this for this bit of data report. And then what it does is return actually the HTML for a graph that's like a live graph with the data pre filled. And all you have to do is touch the picture and teach the the server how to return the HTML. And now you have this interactive page that's like live with animations and stuff. It's super cool. So let me show you probably the best way to see this is through an example. So For example, uh, there's a button. If you just include the script, that's all you got to do. And you say button, instead of having it in a form, you just say hx-post. That's the HTMLX thing. You give it a URL. And when you click it, it says call slash clicked. And when it comes back, replace what button is, the outer HTML, like button and everything in it with whatever you got back from the server, okay? And it even has a uh, a haiku in here, which is pretty cool. JavaScript fatigue, longing for a hypertext already in hand. But let's go <laughs> Let's go look at some examples. These are cool. For example, um, let's do lazy load. If I go over to lazy load, which is a little slow, so it, it probably- It's is lazy. It's quite lazy. It is indeed. <laughs> um. Maybe we will. Here we go. So we come over here, and um, if you just scroll down, you can see like it automatically loaded in this by refreshing. See, there's a little action, boop, 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 and then off it goes. Oh. And all I got to do is say is this image, it has this indicator. Uh, here's the image to show while you're loading. And then what you want to do is just show whatever you get from slash graph. Isn't that slick? And like that's literally what you get. have to write. Let me show you another one. Um, I might do
0: this just for the lazy loading. That's great. Oh. I know,
1: here, let's go do, yeah, look at the active search. So over here, I can type um, J-E, okay, there you go. And just as you type, all you got to do to like type in this little text box and have all these search results come up lazy is just say, uh, here's what you call HTTP post. And the trigger is the key change. There's even a delay. So as you type really fast, it doesn't go insane on the server. It like waits. Really, really cool. Yeah, as a little indicator. And then if you notice at the bottom, there's this thing you can show. And it shows all the requests and the responses that have gone back and forth. There's like a little debug toolbar here for the whole AJAX interaction. Oh, sweet! Isn't that sweet? Yeah,
2: it's nice. How yeah, did you so find if,
1: this? Oh, gosh, I don't remember. I feel like maybe maybe somebody, uh, some listener, told us about it, or I just I ran across it on Twitter or something. I feel like I found it from the community somewhere. Cool. Uh, but I, I don't remember where. But I'm I'm excited about this. Include a JavaScript file. Put one line and then it becomes this cool interactive thing uh, all over the place. So yeah, definitely nice. digging it. Yeah, totally gonna use that. Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah, same. Nice. Right. <laughs> it might it might encourage <laughs> me to up, update my website.
1: <laughs> exactly. You're like, oh it's, so, it's super with. interactive. Look at all this. I rewrote yeah, it completely. It so looks
2: fun. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, cool. All right. What's next?
2: Hi, L D A viz. Um, yes, yeah, so this is also part of that um quick Turnaround data science project that my team did uh, a couple of weeks ago. We were looking at doing um, some topic analysis on text, and um, our first approach was to use latent Dirichlet Dirichlet. Nobody knows how to say it. Just going to say it with confidence latent Dirichlet. Mm-hmm. Um, oh no, I can't remember what the A stands for. Um, <laughs> uh, analysis. Maybe that's the A. Um, we applied that, and but it's the output to understand what you're looking at. Um, you know, you can can have it print out what the topics are and and what words are contained in that topic. And, but, you know, you can't, it's really hard to sort of get into the output of your model to evaluate if it's a good model or not. Um, So what some wonderful people in the R community did was they made LDA Viz, um, which uh, just displays the different elements of the LDA output in a really, really intuitive way. So even if you're not too sure on, the math behind LDA and, you know, what everything means, what what Lambda is and what all the different, like, complex interactions are. It's quite intuitive if you if you spend a bit of time exploring the, the visualization. Um, so that was then ported into Python, um, and that's called, in Python, it's called PyLDAVis. But the, the, the visualization is exactly the same. So, nice. Yeah, so you'd have, um, so in this little partial screenshot of, of the visualization, visualization we have some bars um and the blue bars and the red bars bars so the blue bars are like how how much of the overall so you have all the words in all the topics like in all the documents so baseball um how of, of the all the words in all the documents how much does baseball how much is baseball represented in all those documents um and the red bar represents how much in that topic topic number 19 um how much topic number 19 is made up of of you know,
1: Baseball. Oh, I see. So you have these different topics on the left that you can like click on them and it'll generate the bars to explain more detail. Yes. Okay.
2: So you can click in all the different topics. Um, the number of topics is determined already in the model that you've already created. And you can change that, rerun the model and get that many topics out. Um, so yes, you can like, you can click on the different topics and explore the, the top um, words, either top words based on how expensive they are across all the documents or within that, that one topic. And then there's a slider as well. Um, I don't know if it's an example, if you scroll down, but there'll be a slider which goes between zero and one. Um, and at one, it's the, the the word order, the topic words order um, is ordered by representation across all the documents. Mm-hmm. And if you slide the, the slider all the way down to zero, it's shuffled all the words to be um, more specific, to, to um, show the words that are more specific to that topic that are, exclusive to that topic and oh, nice. not in other topics. Whereas if you have it to one, it's it's prioritizing the words in the list of ones, words that are like everywhere. So hmm. um, so yeah, that's just really easy and nice to play around with and explore your model.
1: It seems like such a powerful way to explore these models around uh, NLP stuff.
2: Yeah, and it just looks, it's just nice, it's just well designed and makes you feel happy playing, <laughs> playing with it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, these pictures and live interactions are great.
2: Yeah, and there's really good documentation as well. So they've got links to um, easy-to-read documents that explain way better than I did um, what everything means <laughs> and how to interpret stuff. So definitely take a look at that. And there's some, I think, links to some YouTube videos and whatnot as well. So, um, yeah, the docs are really nice. Links to academic papers explaining what everything is and topic models. And, yeah, it's good.
1: Yeah, and there's some linked videos there. I I didn't pull them out because I think they're probably like talks or something, but yeah, those look good as well.
2: Mm, Yeah.
1: Cool. Nice. So it says uh, this package was ported over from R and I know there's a fair number of things in the Python data science world that's like that. Do you see that still happening a lot? Like what's this interplay between R and Python these days?
2: I think I've actually not seen that in a while. Um, To me,
1: I'm not very aware of it, but it seemed like that was really popular couple of years ago and it, i hear less of it now
2: yeah yeah well yeah same um i think r is really because r is a, a stats um language so uh and it's been around to stats longer i think than python has been it's much more mature right, yeah. when it comes to stats, and i think um like very specific statistical applications are more advanced in r just because they've been around for longer um python is definitely catching up though um but you know with something like this i think it's nice that rather than uh, reinventing the wheel in Python, they've just taken something that already works and made it work in Python. And
1: exactly, you're like, we like this. Yeah. We we'll just do this. This is great. Yeah. yeah so like,
2: why change it?
1: Yeah. Daniel Chen uh, threw out there, uh, going back a few topics that uh, um, there's Conda dash auto dash env that project which works. Uh, I think probably like the PDM thing that you had, Brian. What do you think? Say that again. I think you know, we're talking about whether Conda has this idea of a automatically activating environments oh, yeah. under Dunder packages. I think this project, uh, Conda-auto-env, does, and uh, apparently cool. there's a tie-in with RStudio as well. The guy who created it.
0: Nice. I was just looking at R, so R's, R looks like it has been it's been around since '93. I didn't know it was that. old. So. oh wow.
1: That's yeah,
2: neat. based on S apparently.
1: Single nested
2: <laughs> F? on f, f? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with like the, the just one
1: character, please. One character is all we need. Yeah, C was a hit. What was something follow on?
2: <laughs> yeah, R was my first uh, programming language for data analysis. So uh, I'm really out of touch with it. Like now that we've got R, which is supposed to be like really amazing and great for, um, like, it's, it makes it easier for for people new to programming to get you know up and running quicker. Um, hmm. But I look, at, I look at R now and I think, oh, I don't know how that works or what that is. <laughs> I've been out of it for so long.
0: Okay, so you're completely in Python now? Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah. But I'm not like uh, no to R. I don't I don't I don't know. You see it sometimes young know, people are like, yay to Python and no to R or the other way around, And yeah. I think it's just silly. Yeah. Everything's. They're both really, really good at what they do.
1: Yeah. If they're doing something cool like this, like LDA viz, you know, do that here as well.
0: Um, speaking of visualization, I want to remind people that are listening to the podcast that the, um, we do, uh, live stream it this so that you can hop on, on Wednesdays and watch with us, um, or you can catch it on our YouTube channel, um, so that you can see the things we're looking at. Uh, we highlight if we're looking at a web page or a cool visualization, can see it. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Is that it, Brian?
0: I think it is. It is. Uh, do you have any extra news or
1: anything? Uh, nothing super exciting, but I did want to tell people about the JetBrain survey. And if you've ever gone to the JetBrain site, did you know that they have a, a little terminal? command prompt for agreeing to the cookie policy, which is kind of cool. Anyway. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) I had to do that kind of, I'm like, oh, I hate these cookie things, but that's kind of cool. I'm going to do that. So they are uh, launching the developer ecosystem survey for 2021. And if you participate, you get some prizes. It does take a little while. It took me like 15 minutes. It's a non-trivial amount of questions, but I'm sure that we'll cover this in three months or whenever the report comes out and there'll be all sorts of cool stuff we can talk about. So, you know, Python people, get your voice heard.
0: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. gotta remember to take that yeah how about you um i got a couple exciting bits um i am going to be speaking uh next week at a couple places so um i'm going to be speaking at the python user group for aberdeen which it's in the uk that's about all i know (laughs) uh it's a virtual (laughs) online yeah it's it's, it's a it's an online thing uh and so i'm gonna i'm gonna teach um there's I, we kind of did a survey of, of the, the people going, and there's a lot of people new to testing and new to PyTest, so I'm going to do sort of a intro to PyTest sort of a thing, or at least a topic around PyTest that's introductory. Um, and then uh, I'm going to do a similar talk, but targeted a little bit closer to what they're doing, to NOAA, which I'll probably get that wrong, National Oceanic something something. Um, so I'm going to talk with one of a group of those people uh, next week. That'll be fun. Um and oh it's in Scotland. Aberdeen is in Scotland. Sorry. Um (laughs) Thank uh, you, Alex. So my I told my kids about both of the things. Um and they're like, Yeah, Aberdeen, that sounds neat. But Noah, really, you're gonna be talking to them. So my kids are excited
1: about that. So Yeah, that's 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 super cool. Jennifer, anything you wanna throw out to people listening? Uh you run a user group, right? Um yeah,
2: we've got Pi Data Manchester that we have going on. And um our next it's on meetup and it's obviously on youtube because <laughs> what? where else are we gonna um <laughs> be but then our next one coming up is on um agent-based models so that's gonna be really cool looking forward to that one yeah and hopefully I mean, i'm not gonna promise too much but we we did put our po- own podcast on hold for a little bit um so hopefully we we will start that up again this year um so one reason why I'm pretty pre interested in the tools that you guys use for your podcast, because I think it makes it um, really interesting and engaging.
1: Yeah, well, cool. I, I think I think some of these tools like we're using, for example, StreamYard for our live streams and stuff. I, I do think there's a lot of, uh, you know, a low bar to adopt those kind of things for a lot of uh, meetups and stuff. So, yeah, that's cool. If people want to know what we're doing, they can you know, shoot us a message and we'll let them know.
0: Yeah, And I, I cool. just looked it up. Scotland is in the UK, so I wasn't completely
1: wrong. It is. No, you're not wrong at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like squares and rectangles. Come on, you said it was a It's all good. All right. Well, with that, cool. let's. Let, you think we should close it out with a joke? Yes. You think, Brian? Yeah. All right. So this one comes to us from Edward Orochena and uh, send us uh, this cool picture here. And this has to do with an engineer helping a designer fix a problem. I, I kind of feel like I want to be the developer. Do you, do you mind being the designer, Brian? Sure. All right. Uh, so the Brian comes to me. The designer comes and says, um, "There's a problem with this design." So I say, "Oh, oh, no problem, no problem. We can fix this here in the terminal." And I, I pull open Z Shell and I'm, I'm rolling along. And, whoa, you're a hacker! No, no, it's just the terminal.
0: But where are all the buttons and icons and drop-down menus? Is this the Matrix? Uh, <laughs>
1: uh, yes. <laughs> uh, have you ever had one of those experiences? I had one of those experiences at a coffee shop. I was doing something with a terminal and I had like three of them open. And one of them was doing like tailing a log. And one was running like a, a pip install script with a bunch of progress bars. And people were like, are you trying to hack us here on the Wi-Fi?" I'm like, no, I'm just working. Leave me alone.
0: <laughs> so I, wow. that, I was on the other side yeah. of it to start with. I was, um, a uh, grad student. I shared a uh, an office uh, with a couple other people, and one of the women that shared the office with us was um, a Vim user or Vi user at the time. And I was with tags and everything, and I was I was an Emacs person at the time with menus and stuff. And so I was watching her code once, and it's just jumping all over the place. Like she'll go to a very and her hands on the keyboard, nothing, no mouse, and the <laughs> windows are. Be popping back and forth, and she's going all over the place. I'm like, oh my god, she's like thinking into the computer. um but So I I learned v, vi because of that experience. Oh, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, when you see people just using Vim or any of Emacs, whatever, like that, like mind blowing. I can't. I still need my. I like to use my mouse.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I like a blended a blended experience as well.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: cool. Well, thanks everybody. Yeah, thanks Brian. Thanks for Thank
2: coming. Thank you.